1: Welcome in podcast listeners. Hope you guys had a fantastic Thanksgiving. We have got a loaded show for you. Todd Furman, uh, Sean Merriman, and Joel Klatt all headed your way, breaking down everything in the world of college football and the NFL. It was a wild weekend. How about Vanderbilt trotting out the goalie from the female soccer team to see whether or not she could make history? What in the world happened there? Derek Mason then fired. How about the Titans with a huge win on the road against the Colts? The Chiefs continue to serve notice that they're the best team in the NFL. The Packers are rolling. The Bears are falling apart. All that and more, plus the college football playoff picture and all the analysis you could possibly want. It's the Outkick radio program. It's live 6 to 9 a.m. Eastern, but you're on the podcast. Go give us five stars. Danny G will read them. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving. The podcast begins now. Outkick the coverage with Clay Travis live every weekday morning from 6 to 9 a.m. Eastern. 3 to 6 a.m. Pacific on Fox Sports Radio. Find your local station for Outkick the Coverage at foxsportsradio.com or stream us live every morning on the iHeartRadio app by searching FSR.
0: Now let's get this party started.
1: You're listening to Fox Sports Radio. Welcome in, Monday edition, Geico Outkick Studios. I hope all of you had fantastic Thanksgiving weekends. Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. Fortunately, Geico makes it easy to bundle your home and car insurance. It's a good thing, too, because having a home is hard work. Go to Geico.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. Geico.com, easy. To me, there were two big stories that came out of the weekend NFL action that we have seen so far. Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs remain the unquestioned best team in the NFL in my mind. I know Steeler fans out there are raising their hands like, hey, excuse you, we're 10-0. I would take Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs to beat anybody in the NFL right now. I think they, I know they've lost a game. I know they played a close game against the Raiders. I know that the Bucks came back after the Chiefs went up 17-7 and they made it somewhat close. But Tyreek Hill is impossible to guard. You have Travis Kelsey, who is impossible to stay uh, in front of and guard. You have Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, who when the Chiefs decide they need to run the football, is an incredibly talented running back. And, most importantly, you have the best quarterback in the NFL and before all is said and done, I believe will be one of the greatest quarterbacks to ever play the game in Patrick Mahomes. And as a result, the Chiefs went on the road and they beat the Bucks, Like I told you, I thought the Chiefs would do. And in the process, they knocked the Bucks down to seven and five. Now, I think there's a decent chance that Brady and the Bucs win their final four. They'll be favored in all four of those games. They could get to 11-5. and Maybe it allows them to fight their way back up to the 5 seed, which would allow them to play against the NFC East team. But in conjunction with the absurdity coming out of Denver, where they had no quarterback at all, effectively the Saints have won the NFC South. So if you are Brady and the Bucs, you're sitting now several games back, you've lost both times to the Saints, you are at best hoping for that 5 seed so you could go up against whoever the team is to emerge from the NFC East. That's one big takeaway. The other big takeaway, how about the Titans going on the road and absolutely dominating against the Indianapolis Colts, a team that is the Colts that had completely owned them. In the last 23 matchups, the Colts had won 23 in this series. And then Derrick Henry rolled into town, and I know people who are Colts fans are going to sit around and they're going to say, but but, look at all the injuries. Look, the Titans had a lot of injuries, a lot of starters out too. They were on their third left tackle of the season. And Derrick Henry just completely took over in this game. Derrick Henry in his last eight road games, this is from NFL Research, has rushed for 1,121 yards since the merger between the AFL and the NFL in 1970. Only Eric Dickerson and Earl Campbell had more rushing yards in an eight-game span of road contest than what Derrick Henry has done in his last eight road games. And let me give you a sense for the other people that have done what Derrick Henry has done in an eight-game road span since 1970. Eric Dickerson ran for 1,188 yards in that eight-game span on the road. Earl Campbell ran for 1,127 yards. Derrick Henry over the last two years 1,121 yards. Barry Sanders did it for 1118 yards and OJ Simpson did it for 1116 yards what Derrick Henry is doing right now he has put himself into the category not just of Hall of Fame running backs but of greatest running backs ever to have played the game Eric Dickerson Earl Campbell Derrick Henry Barry Sanders, OJ Simpson. If you are an old school NFL fan, if you have been watching the NFL for the last 50 years or so, you can argue that those are four of the best backs that have ever existed in the history of the game and Derrick Henry is right there with them. That's pretty unbelievable. The run that Derrick Henry is on The Colts had no chance against him. 140 yards in the first half, three touchdowns. Masterful decision by Mike Vrabel to go for it on fourth down, up 28-14. Remember last week, the Packers were up 28-14 at the half. Vrabel went for it on fourth down. They hit a big pass down the field. And uh, Corey Davis made that catch. And from that point, they then scored right afterward to go up 35-14. The game was over. And so, two pretty signature wins on the road, I thought, on Sunday. Massive win from the Chiefs to keep the Bucks looking like pretenders. And the Titans haven't won their division and hosted a home playoff game since 2008 with five games to go. They took a monstrous step towards potentially being able to do that, and they climbed right on the back of Derrick Henry to potentially find a way to do it. Those were, to me, the two most significant games and the biggest takeaways from Sunday NFL action. Now, we got a bunch of games to unpack for you, and we will continue to do that throughout this day not only in the world of, of the NFL, but also in college football. Packers get a big win. In fact, as you break down the overall playoff picture in the NFL, it's actually starting to come into shape and become pretty intriguing as you come down the stretch run of the season. Where are the games going to be played could become a significant factor Green Bay right now sitting at eight and three and the Saints sitting at nine and two the top two teams in the NFL fighting for that overall number one seed also with the Seahawks sitting on the outside looking in a little bit Pittsburgh's got their game going on Tuesday but Kansas City like I said looks like the best team in the NFL to me The Titans have surged all the way up to number three overall in the NFL right now. We'll break down our top five, bottom five tomorrow. But the Titans with number three seed in the AFC, the Bills sliding in at the four spot. The Browns, by the way, find a way to get it done against a bad Jags team. But now the Browns suddenly going on the road against the Titans. Would you have ever believed? 8-3 Eight and three Titans against the eight and three Browns. That that would be a must see game. Dolphins bounce back at a big win. We'll see what happens with the Ravens. The Raiders seem to be fading again down the stretch of the season, just like happened last year. The craziness of the Denver Broncos rolling out a guy who has basically never played hardly at all in the uh, in the entirety of the NFL, and suddenly he's their starter. I mean, it's all insanity. And it's not even just total insanity, by the way, with the Broncos. We've got total insanity going on right now in the Big Ten, in the Pac-12, in terms of where people in Santa Clara County are even going to be able to play going forward with Stanford and with the 49ers. We have got a whole heck of a lot to unpack, including Vanderbilt trotting out a female soccer goalie from their soccer team to kick at the start of the second half. And then the next day, they fire their head coach, Derek Mason. What in the world's going on there? We will unpack all of that and more. We are scheduled to be joined by Todd Furman next. He is my Fox Bet Live co-host. And uh, we'll dive into all these stories and more. I appreciate all of you hanging out with me. I am Clay Travis. This is Outkick the Coverage. And you are listening to the Monday edition of Fox Sports Radio. This is Outkick the Coverage with Clay Travis.
3: Welcome back in Geico
1: Outkick Studios joined now by my Fox Bet co-host Fox Bet live co-host that is they changed the name on us uh, from uh, lock it in Todd Furman at Todd Furman on Twitter and uh, Furman you ever seen anything like, like we got a lot to get into but the situation in Denver to me is one of the craziest things I've ever seen in my life as a football fan I don't think we're ever going to see anything like it again at least I hope we're not going to I mean I hope that we never have a a new virus that arises and and impacts all of life including sports like this has but I still can't believe what I saw out of the Broncos and I was fortunate enough to have the under in that game but I felt like I was stealing
4: doubt I think as we look at 2020 just when you think sports can't find a way to outdo itself we're dealt a hand where Denver has to go to Kendall Hinton who hadn't thrown a touchdown pass since he was at Wake Forest I believe way back in 2017 but to the Saints credit they start a wide receiver every single week at quarterback in the absence of Drew Brees and seem to operate their offense just fine uh, but ultimately Denver had the hand stacked against them and what was crazy about it too is that number reopened in that 14 or 15 range there was actually professional money laying 16 and a half with the Saints in this particular spot and for the better part of a quarter and a half it looked like it was going to be competitive until Denver fumbled and things, things kind of snowballed on him before the end of the first half
1: yeah I saw where Sal tweeted I think it's kind of funny sarcastically turns out playing quarterback in the NFL is pretty hard um, <laughs> and, uh, and if you haven't done it since uh, since college it's not exactly an easy transition to make
4: Uh, There's no doubt about it, and I think we talk all the time about how to properly evaluate a team without their starting quarterback. Uh, It's rare that you have to try and figure out what a team is going to look like, not without their first, second, or third-string quarterback, but when they go to a practice squad wide receiver to ultimately fill in under center against a very good defense in the New Orleans Saints.
1: All right. Also, haven't seen anything like this, but at least it's a positive, or at least it's a positive if you're a Chiefs fan. Tyreek Hill literally did a backflip into the end zone uh, sort of to put an exclamation point on the start to the game for the Chiefs that frankly it never really felt like the Bucks were able to overcome even though they tried to get the ball back late they never did but you know to try to have an opportunity to seriously make a game of it they never had the ball I don't believe with a chance in the second half to ever you know take the lead and so it's not really as close as the final score might have indicated but is anybody going to be able to stop the Chiefs I mean, when they really focus, like we saw against the Ravens and like we've seen a bunch of times this year, it seems like when they feel challenged, nobody has the high gear that they have.
4: Well, first things first, you're a gambling guy now, so forget who wins the game. The fact that Tampa ultimately lost that game by just a field goal, they yeah. did what they needed to for sports betters in a game that, you're right, never felt that competitive, but they were able to sneak in the back door despite spotting the Chiefs a 17 nothing early lead. But I think Kansas City's top gear, as you mentioned, and their ceiling, so to speak, is higher than any other team in the league. Now, we know in the NFL playoffs, single elimination, there are elements that are involved. Hey, if a team has a down day or Patrick Mahomes happens to get injured, then everything is on the table. But Kansas City playing at its best, if they do so for four quarters, uh, I think any team in the AFC and the NFC will be hard-pressed to slow them down. But you look at Pittsburgh, they can put a little bit of physical pressure uh, on the starting quarterback, so we'll see if they can ultimately get to Mahomes. The Indianapolis Colts, you wouldn't know it by their performance against your Titans yesterday, but they can run the ball and play keep away when healthy. And then when you look in the NFC, I wouldn't rule out the New Orleans Saints being able to push Kansas City a little bit uh, with a sticky defense and Drew Brees being able to play you know glorified game manager so to speak and keep away if they can put together six or seven minute drives
1: you know this because you talk to me a decent amount but i'm a titans fan and as obviously people who listen to this program know the titans uh four and 19 coming into the game yesterday against the colts that is they'd won four and lost 19 in the last 23 it's been a long time since i enjoyed a game more The Titans took control. We're up 35-14, kind of a masterful stroke by uh, Vrabel to go for it late instead of punting. He had the team on the field to punt, comes back out. They hit a deep ball to Corey Davis, scores. effectively the game's over. What did that tell you, if anything, about the Titans and the Colts? Titans now – what, what, one game lead and also a half game lead in the tiebreak scenario going forward. Five to go. Lots can still happen. But the Colts have two games against the Texans who are actually playing decently. So I think the Titans have the easier schedule and the lead right now when it comes to the, the schedule and the tie break. What did you learn from that game?
4: Well, I think when you look at the Titans, this game, a potential landmine uh, coming up this Sunday. And it will go a long way in defining not only the Titans. Meaning the Browns coming to come town. I mean, yeah, it's an interesting it, it, game. Exactly. And you're going to look at the Titans. They'll be more than a field goal favorite in that particular game against Cleveland. But I think it showed that Arthur Smith, when he wants to break tendency and elect to throw, that the Titans can beat you a variety of ways. Yes, Derrick Henry had a huge half with three touchdowns, and I believe he was close to 140 yards rushing. But you threw the ball a little bit, you get the big play from A.J. Brown, and we saw some of that in the first half the first time those two teams played, and then they kind of abandoned it. If the Titans are willing to throw on first down, it makes them that much more difficult. Difficult to stop. Uh, I do think there are still some major question marks on the, for the team defensively, uh, and Indianapolis not at full strength, but hey, you go into an opposing team's building, you win outright as a three-point dog commanding with a commanding 19-point victory. It speaks volumes for a team that was really struggling for an identity when they'd lost three out of four. Now suddenly they've won two in a row and a very manageable schedule because if you get through the Browns, you have a road game against Jacksonville, a home date against the Lions before you finish the season on the road at Green Bay and at the aforementioned Houston Texans.
1: Yeah, there's no doubt. We're talking to Todd Furman. Okay, so you and I and and Sal, we were all kind of texting about this, but we we kind of were joking about the disaster that was the Broncos at the quarterback position. But the NFL is at a minimum going to have 14 teams playing in the first wild card weekend, right? May end up being 16 before all is said and done, Uh, but right now they have two bye weeks. Everybody else is going to be playing. When you look at that, It's almost inevitable that at least one team in the playoffs is going to have some sort of substantial COVID-related issue, right? I mean, I think it would be kind of a surprise if that weren't the case. What are they going to do in a scenario like that? Can you imagine if that Bronco game had been a playoff game as opposed to just a regular season one?
4: Well, oh, it would have created a headache. Uh, imagine, uh, I know we talked about some of the marquee quarterbacks. If you're a Green Bay Packers fan, or you're the league, and suddenly Aaron Rodgers is unavailable, or in the case of the defending Super Bowl champs, the Chiefs don't have Patrick Mahomes at their disposal for a playoff game. Uh, I think the NFL really has to try and figure it out, and we saw the bubble work in Major League Baseball. We saw bubble work to get a Stanley Cup champion crowned and ultimately crowned some a champion in the NBA Finals as well. Uh, it's got to be a model that the NFL has kicked around, and whether they want to Devo- that information publicly or not, why not make sure that you have this contingency plan in place that as soon as the regular season is over, you can shuttle all of your teams, the AFC to one venue and the NFC to another, and allow these players to operate for three to four weeks for teams that get all the way through in a safe environment, more so than rolling the dice and taking the risk that, hey, look, you could be down a couple of your marquee superstars in the games that matter most after you fight tooth and nail all year long just to even get to this point.
1: Well, I'll give you an example, right? Right now, if the season were ending today, Kansas City would be at home and they would be hosting the Indianapolis Colts. That would be your two versus your seven matchup, right? If that were to actually happen, what would that line, I'm kind of putting you on the spot a little bit, but what kind of line would you be talking about if the Chiefs didn't have Patrick Mahomes? And if you able to have the regular roster for the Colts was fairly healthy. I mean, that's like a seven or eight or nine point line swing, right?
4: You're talking about Patrick Mahomes drop off to Matt Moore right now, the level he's playing at. I actually make it more than a touchdown. So you're right in that 7.5 to 9 range for what Mahomes is worth to the number. Uh, and ultimately, if you factor in home field advantage at Arrowhead at Kansas City, you'd be looking at the Chiefs more than a touchdown favorite. Suddenly, that game is much more in line with a pick 'em. and Kansas City doesn't have that edge that they otherwise would have working in their favor. And yeah. I think the Colts become one of the most difficult outs for the Kansas City Chiefs, even with a healthy Patrick Mahomes because when you look at the way the Colts are built with a strong offensive line a slightly underrated defense I don't think Matt Moore would scare them in the least so yeah I mean you're talking about a seismic shift because you can do with just about any other player in this league we talk all the time about skill position talent the best wide receivers and running backs one and a half to two points absolute max there are some other guys on the defensive side of the ball that will move the needle but when you're in the Patrick Mahomes Aaron Rodgers category and you look at backup quarterbacks uh, you're talking about more than a touch down adjustment uh, in a playoff game uh, essentially where these teams are theoretically relatively equal other than at the quarterback spot
1: tomorrow and it sounds crazy to say but tomorrow we've got a Tuesday big NFL game and I guess one of the benefits out there if you're a sports fan of the crazy COVID ridiculousness to the extent that there is any at all is that you know you've got crazy games happening on crazy days the Ravens now are a 10-point underdog against the Steelers Is that starting to make you think, uh, even with RG3 playing, that there's value on the Ravens? Or how would you deal with that scenario? And what has the impact of Lamar Jackson being out with COVID meant to that game?
4: I think with Baltimore having additional time to prepare, they've been able to hatch a game plan now. They've known since the middle of last week that Lamar Jackson wasn't going to be out there. They can utilize the element of surprise. And we're talking about a number before all these COVID cases broke that would have had the Steelers as a two-and-a-half-point favorite. Now, it seems hour by hour, there are other Ravens that get ruled out. We know about how depleted they are in the backfield. We know that Willie Sneed was one of the guys. And I think Mark, they're up to Mark 16,
1: Andrews, their tight tied in. Yeah, I mean, that's a big hit.
4: 18 players. But when you look at this total here at 41, all the burden falls now on the Ravens' defense. RG3 isn't going to be asked to do a whole heck of a lot. They're going to try and run the offense at least a modified version that they would with Lamar Jackson. But as this price climbs, I think the Ravens become a semi-attractive underdog that you value bet out of principle as you get towards 11. But I think when you look at this total at 41, that's probably the better angle because we have to factor in that the total the first time these two teams met was in the mid-40s, and now Baltimore with a depleted offense, suddenly you're in a very similar or ballpark plus or minus a field goal or such
1: when do you start factoring in for your game planning we're talking to uh, Todd Furman you can follow him on Twitter at Todd Furman you can watch him on Fox Bet Live that certain teams it appears now I know people say nobody's trying to lose in the NFL right I mean that's a cliche we've heard over the years the Jets maybe are just awful but with the Miami Dolphins coming in and beating them as soundly as they did with the way the Cowboys performed there are a lot of teams that it feels like have mailed it in and maybe it's even occurring more this year because of COVID. How would you assess going forward just just the the, the motivation factor for some of these teams?
4: It definitely gets more challenging. I think when you look at the bottom of the league, you have to identify spots where you feel they're going to step their level of play up. And while Jacksonville may be depleted, you look at all the guys on IR, some of the difference makers, especially on the defensive ball, they're showing fight every single week. I mean, the Jags two weeks ago came up four points short uh, against the Green Bay Packers as nearly a two-touchdown dog. You saw them fight tooth and nail against the Cleveland Browns in a game where professionals actually bet the Browns from six and a half up to seven. And you saw Jacksonville sneaking in the back door, the late touchdown, coming up a two-point conversion short. So that's a team that I think has shown fight week in, week out. They're just not very talented. The Jets are a very different story uh, when you talk about this team with a lame duck head coach. I won't say it was about you know, not showing fight against the Dolphins. There's just not a whole lot of playmakers out there for them. And people laugh when I said that Joe Flacco probably gave them a better chance because he throws a more aggressive deep ball than what they get out of Sam Darnold. Now, the Cowboys, that's a much different story because this seems like an entitled roster, right? now with players other than Andy Dalton who have long-term contracts, they know they're going to be a member of the organization, and you hate to say it, but Ezekiel Elliott as your figurehead of your offense, he's not a guy, I think, when all the chips are stacked against him, that's going to go out there and play with his chip on his shoulder and try and inspire everyone else. So Dallas is a team, other than maybe their division games, because they're still not eliminated, you might be able to get a little bit of value going against, but I think it's wait-and-see approach. You have to go week by week, because if you make blanket generalizations in this league, you're going to get an underdog that comes up to Uh, especially when they're catching more than a touchdown.
1: All right, let's talk college football for a second. I'm fascinated looking at the futures markets for who could potentially win in college football. And the Ohio State Buckeyes took a big hit. And I don't even know if you've paid much attention to the futures numbers. I'm betting you have. But Alabama feels like a, a very good shape, obviously, to make the college football playoff. Clemson and Notre Dame still in decent shape. But Ohio State's up to 8-1 to one right now, at least on Fox Bet, to win the title. How much of that do you think is just looking at having nothing to do with the team itself and just looking at whether or not they're going to be able to qualify for the playoff, predicated almost entirely on COVID? This is truly an unheard of bookmaking kind of situation, isn't it?
4: I think it's taking on unnecessary risk, uh, to be quite honest, by making the Buckeyes an eight-to-one shot to win the national title, because when you talk about how they power rate against Alabama and Clemson, and I've been as critical of Ohio State secondary as anybody, because I don't think they've really been tested other than the Indiana game. I mean, this is a team that's going to be less than a field goal underdog against Clemson. There's some folks I talked to that would make them a slight favorite and say that Alabama wouldn't be more than a field goal favorite against the Buckeyes. So a money line rollover, should they get into the college football playoff, wouldn't pay you anywhere close to 8-1. to one. I think when you look at Fox Bet numbers now, you take a little bit of a flyer there. You hope the Buckeyes play out the stretch because when you see the remaining schedule, Michigan and Michigan State aren't going to put them on upset alert in my opinion. The Big Ten Championship against Northwestern, I'm as big a Pat Fitzgerald fan as you're going to find. I just don't think they have the athletes to slow down the Buckeyes and suddenly you're holding a pretty juicy ticket with a team that's more than capable of winning two-game playoff format with a quarterback that's as dynamic as Justin Fields. And I think when you look at some of the other odds out there now on fan duel clay i mean notre dame at nine to one florida 16 to one maybe you believe in the aggies at 25 to one because if notre dame were to knock off clemson and florida loses to alabama does texas a&m become the most likely beneficiary sliding in there is that four seat and then a scenario where ohio state can't be out there i'm not even sure where you go about finding the four teams maybe cincinnati does get a seat at the table if they ultimately go undefeated and are crowned aac champions do you
1: we're talking to Todd Furman Foxbet live at Todd Furman on Twitter. Do you buy the Heisman race according to oddsmakers being effectively down to Kyle Trask or Mac Jones and maybe coming down to the SEC Championship game between those two teams and for people out there who haven't looked ahead schedule-wise, Florida this weekend has Tennessee, next weekend in theory they would play against LSU. That would finish their regular season. They would be nine and one if they won both those games. Alabama still has LSU now. This weekend, next weekend, presumably they would play Arkansas. That would get Alabama to ten and zero, and then you'd roll into the SEC. Kyle Trask and sorry, uh, uh, you, you've got situations where Justin Fields and Trevor Lawrence have not played very many games. Obviously, Trevor Lawrence also had the COVID issues. Are you buying it as a two horse race?
4: I am unless something ridiculous were to happen over the next couple weeks. I can't see Trevor Lawrence getting himself back into the mix. Yes. He looked great throwing for more than 400 yards against Pittsburgh on Saturday, but he hadn't started a game in 35 days. Justin Fields needed to be picture perfect against Indiana because he wasn't going to have that full body of work. I think the craziest number out there right now is if you look down the board, the sixth favorite is actually Devonta Smith, uh, Matt Jones, number one receiving threat at Alabama. The problem for Kyle Trask is that he's got to go through Alabama and I ultimately think he's got to win the SEC championship as a live underdog to knock Mac Jones off that seat because when we look at Florida defensively Mac Jones will have a much easier task carving up Dan Mullen's team on a fast track in the Georgia Dome, whereas Trask, going to be difficult to try and throw for 300 yards and multiple touchdowns so in this case, rather than laying a $1.35 with the Gators now, I think you're better off waiting until the SEC title game and betting Florida on the money line if you believe that Kyle Trask is going to be the eventual Heisman Trophy winner.
1: No, that's- a really smart idea because what do you think that line ends up being with uh florida and alabama in the sec championship game
4: Right now, the way Alabama's playing, I make Alabama a 10-point favorite on a neutral field in that particular spot. I think what's getting undersold amid all the headlines for Nick Saban getting COVID in Alabama's offense, this defense is gelling at the right time of year. Suddenly, that 40-some-odd point outburst that they allowed against Ole Miss seems to be a distant memory. They locked Auburn down for extended stretches, giving up just six points up until garbage time touchdown with less than five minutes to go. In the two previous weeks, Kentucky had a little bit of success moving against Florida, Alabama bases shut them down and I wouldn't be stunned at all if Alabama held LSU to 10 points or less this coming Saturday.
1: I wouldn't either. Uh, Todd Furman, appreciate it, my man. I'll see you on television later this afternoon.
4: It's a pleasure. Enjoy the rest of the show, Clay.
1: Will do. That's Todd Furman at Todd Furman on Twitter. When we come back, I want to talk about this Vanderbilt kicker story that completely took off on social media over the weekend, Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, Vanderbilt had a female kicker come in and then they fired Derek Mason, the coach, Are those connected? What exactly went on? I'll talk about it next. This is OutKick on Fox Sports Radio. This is OutKick, the coverage with Clay Travis.
3: Welcome back in
1: Geico Outkick Studios. Appreciate all of you hanging out with us, finishing up the first hour Monday edition. My thanks to Todd Furman. You just heard me with him. By the way, giving you a roadmap of where we are headed. Uh, Sean Berryman, uh, NFL Lights Out podcast uh, former NFL uh, star will be with us in hour two breaking down everything in the NFL in the third hour of the program as we always are on the Monday edition of the program during college football season Joel Klatt who is the lead college football analyst for Fox Sports will join us and all of that uh, is headed your direction much to get into so many different NFL and college football stories to address but I wanted to talk about this because a lot of you out there who are listening to this program know uh, I'm born and raised in Nashville, Tennessee. And I live here now in the city of Nashville doing this national radio show, which has grown into a colossus. Appreciate all of you out there listening in all 50 states. I went to grad school at Vanderbilt, went to law school at Vanderbilt, also got uh, an MFA, my Master of Fine Arts. So I went to five years of grad school at Vanderbilt University, met my wife there. I think it is one of the greatest colleges or universities anywhere in the country. I absolutely love Vanderbilt University uh, and everything that Vanderbilt represents. And so Vanderbilt on Sunday during this game, the Titans won against the Colts. Vanderbilt put out the news that they were firing Derek Mason, and Derek Mason uh, had been at Vanderbilt is in his seventh year. Good dude, I like Derek Mason a lot. Uh, very fond of him, but had not won enough ten SEC football wins in seven years as the head coach at Vanderbilt. Even that was not enough for Vanderbilt. They're zero and eight this year, and so they made the decision to fire him. And there are a lot of different coaches out there, I think, that are interested in getting this job. But what was interesting about this, to me, was the timing that Vanderbilt followed to fire Derek Mason. In particular, and you probably didn't miss it because it was everywhere, on Saturday, Vanderbilt had a female kicker, a goalie for the soccer team, came on the field and kicked the opening kickoff of the second half. And it went viral, and it got a massive amount of attention. And the, the, the goalie on the soccer team, I don't begrudge her making the decision to kick for the team. I understand why she would find that to be a, uh, a really attractive opportunity and an important message to send and all of those things. And I certainly understand how it became a big story. But what I'm surprised by, and frankly, I know I shouldn't be surprised, but I was disappointed about is, look, the way college football in the NFL works is after every game, we all go back over the games. And by the way, her name, Sarah Fuller, is the kicker. We all go back over the games, and we basically Monday morning quarterback everything that took place in the game. And so what I was really surprised by is, no one was able to say anything other than this is the greatest moment in the history of college football. That's what it's kind of felt like on social media. And I was watching this live because I watch college football all day on Saturday and I'm a double Vanderbilt alum in the grad school. So I probably watch it more Vanderbilt than your average person does, certainly. And what I was really surprised by throughout this entire story was no one pointed out that Vanderbilt had a punter who was their starting punter and was able to play and there were no issues whatsoever with him, right? In fact, Vanderbilt's offense was so bad, you could argue, and I think you could argue it fairly, that this punter, Harrison Smith, was probably the best player that Vanderbilt had on the field for the entirety of the game. And he kicked seven punts, all right? And so I want you to think about this for a minute. If you kick the ball seven times and you do an average of 43.3 yards per punt, and two of those are 50-plus yard punts, you're a pretty good kicker, right? And I think everybody out there would agree that it's tougher to punt than it is to kick off a football. By which I mean, in order to punt, you have to feel the snap, you have people rushing at you, you have to drop the ball, and you have to perfectly kick it. And that's a lot of different challenges. And then you have to be capable of making a tackle as well in the event that the punt returner is coming in your direction. If you can do all of that, Why was the punter not the choice to kick off? Why was this idea that Vanderbilt didn't have a kicker allowed to take root and nobody said, wait a minute, they've got a punter and let's take it out of college football. This happens pretty regularly in the NFL because the NFL has limited rosters. And so there's no backup field goal kicker on the NFL roster. If your field goal kicker gets injured, usually the punter comes in to kick extra points or to attempt any field goal. Not because the punter is a great backup field goal kicker, but just because NFL rosters, there aren't enough players on the sideline to have a backup field goal kicker. And by the way, if your punter injures himself, then your field goal kicker would usually handle any punts that might have to happen for the rest of the game. That's pretty commonplace in the NFL. So I watched Sarah Fuller, this female kicker, kick the ball to start the second half, and she was kicking the ball with somebody kneeling, holding the ball, and she kicked it directionally right at the 35-yard line so that somebody had to kind of smother the ball there. But Vanderbilt was down 21 points, and they started off the second half with a kick that guaranteed the opponent the ball right at the 35-yard line. If that had happened with a male kicker, people would have said, man, that was an awful kick. So this felt like, to me, a stunt that was designed by Derek Mason to try to make it more likely that he was going to be able to keep his job. Because this idea that Vanderbilt had nobody else who could kick is just transparently false. They have a punter who was a pretty good punter, and able to punt the ball seven times for Vanderbilt, and you're telling me that punter couldn't have walked out and popped the ball up in the air as a free kicker to start the second half with the kickoff? You're telling me he was unable to kick the ball 35 yards into the air and do the exact same thing That this female kicker did? That's just not true. And some people out there are going to be like, oh my God, how dare you say anything negative about this story at all? That's sexist of you. That's the first thing people will say. Oh my God, that's sexist. But I don't buy into that at all. If you are a fan of college football or the NFL, you question everything that coaches and players do, particularly if they lose a game. Why did they run that play call? Why did they try a field goal there? Why didn't they go for it on fourth down? These are usual conversations that every single person out there listening to me right now has about their favorite team. And yet, I didn't see anybody else in the media asking, wait a minute, why does Vanderbilt claiming they need a kicker when their punter is fine – and he's able to punt the ball seven times in a game, and you're telling me this guy couldn't kick off to start the second half, but he was capable of coming on the field and fielding a punt seven times and bombing it down the field? It it It's a stunt. And again, I don't blame Sarah Fuller. I'm not saying she did anything wrong, but this feels like, to me, Clearly a stunt if you actually look at all of the data. And I sometimes feel like, if you listen to this show, you know I say this all the time, I feel like the world has gone insane and I look at the facts and I'm like, how am I the only person saying this? And I think the Vanderbilt football team was thinking it because I've watched them play all season and that's the worst performance they've had all year. And then they fired Derek Mason the next day. I think I don't think all that's a coincidence. I think this is connected. I'll talk about it a little bit more at the start of the second hour as we dive back into the NFL. Sean Merriman scheduled to join us. I'm Clay Travis. Appreciate all of you hanging out with us here on Fox Sports Radio. Oh, oh,
0: oh, alright.